The Old Testament reading for this, the third Sunday in Lent, which serves as the text for our sermon this morning, comes from the book of Exodus, the 20th chapter. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. O come, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, Epistle reading comes from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, the first chapter. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, 
whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Rise for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel comes to us according to St. John, the second chapter. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And this is the gospel of our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Think back over just this morning. How many rules have you had to follow so far today? If you drove here, you had to stay on your side of the road, obey the speed limits, yield to oncoming traffic, and stop when you saw a large red octagon, just to name a few. If you were getting ready with your family, you probably had to obey some rules or at least some common courtesies about how much time you can spend in the bathroom, how to treat your siblings, and what time you had to leave the house. And even things that we sort of take for granted. Many of them are rules that have been instilled in us by our parents. Hold the door for people. Say please and thank you. Don't drink orange juice right out of the carton. Whether we like it or not, our lives are filled with rules and regulations. Some rules are very easy to follow. Like one I saw on the side of a tanker the other day. It said, inedible, pig blood only, not for human consumption. You got it, chief. (laughs) Others are a little harder, like, you shall honor your father and mother. And so in today's Old Testament lesson, as we hear God give the commandments, the basic fundamental rules that not just Christians but all people should live by it can be a little off-putting. I mean, here's God, who is perfect and almighty and holy, telling us more of what we can and can't do. And it's not just here. Here we receive the Ten Commandments, but God didn't give us just ten do's and don'ts. It seems like every time we read the Bible, it's something else. Do this. Don't do that. Can't you read the signs? We resent that God gives us so many rules to follow. Throughout the Old Testament alone, there are about 690 distinct commands, rules, and regulations laid out by God for
for his people. Some of them, like the commandments, are for all generations. Basic rules that every single person needs to follow. Some of them were ceremonial, like the kosher dietary laws and washing your hands and vessels in certain ways. They were to be obeyed by God's people to set them apart while they waited for the Messiah, but have now been fulfilled by Jesus and are no longer necessary. Others were basic civil laws that God laid out through which he governed his people, some of which we still use, others we don't. But as we look at all those laws and commands, we get angry, we get frustrated. We want to be our own people. We want to do what we want to do. And we accuse God of making up all these rules just to see what kind of hoops we're going to jump through. We think God is sitting up in heaven with schemy fingers going, hmm, what can I make them do today? And then with a cruel twinkle in his eye, he says, ooh, I know how much they like to do this. Let's make it forbidden. <laughs> we claim that God is arbitrarily keeping us from wonderful things just to make sure that we don't have too much fun as Christians. And to many people, Christian and non-Christian alike, that's what the Christian faith is about. Following some arbitrary rules that don't make a whole lot of sense and that keep you from doing all the fun stuff that everyone else gets to do. But that's not it at all. And that's not at all what God's law is about. These commandments and laws, they are given to us by God not arbitrarily, not to prove his superiority, but out of love for us and for our protection. So many things that this world calls good and natural and beautiful actually lead only to heartache, sorrow, addiction, death. Sexual immorality, which is the bell of the ball in our society today, it leads to heartache. It breaks people inside and out. It shatters relationships, families, entire societies. Greed, which is promoted as good, see what the neighbor has and make sure that your boat is bigger. It can never be satisfied. It is a chasing after the wind, and you will never catch it. Drunkenness, which the world says is just a fun little escape. It leads to so many other sins, so much addiction, so much pain and brokenness. Coveting and materialism, putting your wants and desires before God's and your fellow man's. All of these things that our world promotes and says, see, if you do these, you will be free and life will be good. They only lead to pain and suffering and sorrow. They can never be satisfied. You can never have enough, and you will never be happy if that is the source of your joy. All God's commandments against such things, they are not to make sure that we miss out on something great and prove that we have the dedication to actually follow God when he tells us things that are silly. They are there to keep us from the pain that these things entail. God, in his infinite wisdom, God, in his fatherly love, sees what these things do to our lives, and he tells us, don't get involved in them. 
Don't let the camel get its nose under the tent. Don't open the door and let these things get a foothold to destroy your life. And in his fatherly love, he warns us. He tells us in no uncertain terms, these things are bad. They will tear you apart, and I don't want to see you get hurt, so don't do these things. And so in love, not hatred or dominance, God gives us his holy commands to protect us from some of the earthly consequences that we might otherwise run headlong into. But it's more than that. It's not just about warnings and consequences. Think back to your confirmation days. There are three uses of the law. The curb, the mirror, and the ruler. The curb is what we just talked about. Where God's law warns us, keeps us from filling our lives with gross sin. There are consequences and you should not want to do this. The ruler is where we measure our lives by God's law and strive to live according to it, even though we know that we cannot do so perfectly. Those are good. But the most important use of the law is the second one, the mirror. As a mirror, God's law shows us that we simply can't live up to the standard that God has set. When we look in the mirror of God's perfect law, when we see just how much it takes, how many rules we would have to obey to achieve his standard of perfection, we see just how filthy our lives really are. Even if we look better than the people around us, even if we feel pretty darn good about how well we're walking the line, we see how miserably we have broken every single command and rule that God has ever given us. So many of them seem impossible. Don't covet? That's kind of like saying don't think about the smell when you drive by the ADM plant. Don't take God's name in vain. How are we supposed to do that when everyone is constantly abusing his name without thinking twice and it makes us stand out when we say things like gosh instead? Even the ones that we think we've kept, we have broken them by God's standard because his standard is far more than we think. We might say to ourselves, well, I've never stabbed anyone to death, so I've never murdered Jesus tells us that if we are angry with someone, we've committed murder in our heart, and we have broken the commandment. We say, well, I've never cheated on my wife, so I'm good to go on commandment six. But again, Jesus says that if we have ever looked at someone lustfully, we have broken the commandment in our heart. And so the law shows us our brokenness, our filthiness, the fact that we can't do it. Seeing how wretched we truly are when we look in the mirror of God's law, we see that there is no chance that we can earn heaven. No possibility that we could clean ourselves up enough to be deserving of God's love. And yet, as we stare in that mirror, we see not just ourselves, but also the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why the second use of the law is the most important. The curb and the mirror, they are good and useful, and they benefit us greatly. But ultimately, they can't do anything permanent in our lives. But the cross 
can. And when we look in the mirror of God's law and we see all of our sin that we can't fix, it drives us to seek help, to flee to the foot of the cross, to cry out to Jesus Christ for mercy and forgiveness. And he willingly, lovingly, freely gives it to us. When we look to the cross, we see that Jesus Christ has fulfilled every single one of those rules for us. Now this is folly to the world. How in the world could Jesus live a perfect life, they ask, with all those rules to keep track of? And even if he did, how does that benefit you in any way? And if he was so perfect and powerful, how in the world could he have died like that? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus could live that perfect life because he is God in the flesh. And how does that benefit us? Well, he willingly gave his life as the atoning sacrifice, dying in our place so that we could be set free from everlasting death. He who was without sin became sin to set us free. All our wrongdoing, every time that we disobeyed, knowingly or unknowingly, all of that transgression, it was laid upon Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. He who was perfect and holy and had completely fulfilled the law, he took upon himself all of our sin, all of our transgression, all of our guilt, so that we who are disobedient, wretched sinners could be proclaimed holy and innocent in the eyes of God, by his loving sacrifice. And how could Jesus die? Only because he allowed himself to. Because he willingly laid down his life in agony and in shame for you. He didn't have to die, you know. He hadn't broken any of God's rules. He was without sin and therefore beyond the reach of death. But so that you could be with him forever, he suffered, died, and was buried. He endured the shame and the folly of the cross to purchase and win you from sin, death, and the devil, to give you the free gift of everlasting life in heaven with him. All throughout Lent, as we contemplate the cross of Jesus, we realize that his death happened for us. The only reason Jesus died was to take away our sin, to suffer God's righteous wrath in our place, to pay the penalty that we had run up so very high. And yet, even death could not hold him. And his resurrection, it is now your resurrection, by grace, through faith. You have been united with him through the waters of baptism. Your sin has been put to death in him, and you now have eternal life because of his sacrifice on your behalf. You don't get to go to heaven because you follow all his rules so well. You get to go to heaven because he did on your behalf. And now, despite your continuing sin, you are declared holy. You are declared innocent. You are declared and made righteous in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has done for you. You are clothed in his robe of righteousness. You, a sinner, 
have been given His holiness and His perfection despite your sin. There is no getting around it. The Bible is full of commandments, laws, edicts, and rules that Almighty God has given to us. And if we were able to keep them all, we would be welcomed into heaven on our own with trumpet fanfares and applause. But as we look at all those rules, we start to get nervous. We start to resent God. We start to think that maybe he's just trying to keep us away from some of our favorite things. But we shouldn't. Because God, our loving Heavenly Father, has laid out his law as a gift for us to protect us from the pain and destruction that sin seeks to fill our lives with. And even as we recognize that, still we start to despair as we realize that we could never follow so many rules. But then the mirror of God's law shows us not just how we've failed, but how he has triumphed. The law drives us to the cross of Jesus Christ because there and there alone we see a solution. There and there alone we are able to find solace and rescue and salvation. Not in that we are empowered to fulfill God's law on our own, but that in Jesus Christ, our Savior, we see it fulfilled perfectly on our behalf. Dear Christian, rejoice that God has lovingly given you his law and strive to live by it by the power of the Holy Spirit for it will bring you great comfort and protection in this wicked, wretched world. But rejoice even more that God has lovingly given you his gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He has fulfilled the law in your place. He has laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice to pay for your sin. He has taken away all of your guilt and declared you innocent as you have been washed by his holy blood. For by the cross of Jesus Christ alone, by his empty tomb alone, you are forgiven of every one of your sins, and eternal life in heaven is yours. Thanks be to God. Amen.